0: Welcome to episode 43 of Hind Wings and Bloodlust. I'm your host, Rachel. So today we're going to be talking about ladybirds and spiders. And I've got a guest with me who is a science communicator and spider advocate. And she's got over, I think, around 400 spiders. Is that right? It
1: fluctuates at the moment. (laughs) Closer to a hundred, but if you'd asked me this time last year, it would have been about two thousand.
0: <laughs> okay, um, and so her name is uh, is T. Francis. So, hello, and uh, how are you?
1: Hi, I'm great, thank you, and thank you very much for having me on.
0: <laughs> no problem. So, first of all, like first question, um, I ask everyone this who comes on the show: Have you seen any ladybirds recently? I
1: have, actually, yeah. I spend quite a lot of time out in my garden just grubbing around and looking for whatever I can find. And I noticed recently that a couple of my buddlier plants are absolutely covered in blackfly. And as a result, we have some ladybirds hanging around. And uh, I've been keeping an eye on things. And I went down there the other day and I noticed that one of the plants that had a particularly bad blackfly infestation Mm. now has absolutely none on it at all. (laughs) (laughs) i can only assume that my little ladybird friends have been doing a very good job indeed (laughs) yeah
0: i think that's i think that's probably yeah because i mean the other day i um i found a two-spot pupa and i hatched it out and put it on the roses and then like i found another ladybird and i was gonna put that on the roses as well and then i realized like there's no aphids left because the other one's (laughs) eaten because it's
1: eaten it all (laughs) I had no idea until that happened just how effective they are when it comes to that kind of thing because obviously spiders are my thing so I spend all my time looking at spiders learning about spiders which means that other types of animals other you know insects and things Mm. they they get a little bit neglected as far as my knowledge is concerned and You know, I mean, I'm familiar with them. I can recognise a ladybird pupae when I see, a larvae when I see one. I can recognise, you know, different types of ladybirds to an extent. Um, But I'd never really paid that much attention to, you know, their feeding Mm -hmm. habits and their behaviour. I know that they eat aphids and that they're good Mm. for aphid control, but I had no idea (laughs) they were (laughs) that good at it. So now I understand why. When I I lived in America for a while, and you used to be able to go into garden centres over there and buy Mm. a tub full of ladybirds to release on your plants in the garden to eat various pests. And you know, I mean, I I, I understand that it's effective bi- biological pest control to an extent, but I was always a little skeptical as to you know how how good is this going to be? Okay, so the answer is really good because I only saw two ladybirds. I only saw two ladybirds, and there were thousands of aphids, and they're gone. I can't believe it. <laughs> so yeah, and that's in yeah. the space of a few days. So that's mm. extremely cool.
0: Okay, so. You like um just I think you like describe yourself as like a spider advocate. Well you are a spider advocate. I just wondered like what does that actually involve?
1: Well, I use the term spider advocate at the moment because although I am actively involved in science, in the science of um spider behavior, ecology, taxonomy, all that kind of thing. I, I'm reluctant to refer to myself as a scientist at yeah. the moment, yeah. just because it's not my profession. I do mm-hmm. it out of the love for it, and also I'm not currently affiliated with any sort of uh, institutions or universities or anything. I'm, I'm, I'm between qualifications, shall we say?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So I use the term spider advocate because it's more kind of it, it's a broader term, and I think I feel comfortable referring to myself as that and not you know, saying, oh, I'm a spider scientist, and then not being fed up with, you know, here's my employed role, this is where Mm. I work. You know what I mean? So um, as far as being a spider advocate is concerned, I suppose it's different for a lot of people. It depends on, you know, the depth of their involvement. Um, Me personally, um, the main reason that I am as sort of active in the science communication realm online as I am is because, I want to reach as many people as I can with Mm. a pro-spider message because I think it's important to educate people and to increase their knowledge to give them a bit of a better understanding of these animals with the hopes that they'll be a little less quick to kill them when they see them and perhaps a little more understanding of Mm. how important they are in in our ecosystems and in our everyday life, how how important their role is um, in terms of... Sustaining our Mm. kind of global ecosystem, and you know how important they are in terms of pest management, and Mm. how that has a knock-on effect in terms of you know our agriculture and our resources, that kind of thing. It might seem like okay, well, how does one spider in my house relate to global agriculture? It's like okay, I, I realize that's quite a leap, but you've got to look at it more broadly. You know, it's like if one person has a better understanding of them and stops killing them because now they understand what they do and how useful they are, maybe they'll pass that message on to a couple of their yeah. friends. Maybe they'll then pass their message on to a couple of their friends. And before you know it, there's a like hundred people who aren't killing spiders anymore. And it it makes a difference, you know? So... My role as spider advocate is to try and show people that they're not to be afraid of. You know, there's nothing to be afraid of. They're they're not scary animals. Everything that we hear in the media and, you know, in movies and TV, all that kind of thing that paints them in a very negative light, it's not really rooted in fact. I mean, there are a couple types of spiders out there who are very dangerous, but the likelihood of most people coming into contact with them is it's minuscule. It's just not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, and to get close enough to a spider that can hurt you, you know, to be able to give it the opportunity, you've got you've got to be annoying it. You've got to be at, you know, antagonizing it. Don't do that and it won't bite you, you know? So Yeah, exactly. But I do understand that people's fear, there are different types of fear, you know, some people mm. are afraid of being bitten, some people are just irrationally afraid of mm. what the spider looks like, how it moves. All these
0: things. i think a lot of people don't like the legs of the
1: yeah I, I hear that i hear that quite a lot a lot of people mm. really kind of wigged out by their legs and how they move and how far they are and how you know you see a spider in your room and then the next thing you know it's born and you're like oh my god where is it like I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Get that. I do get that and so yeah yeah my approach to that kind of thing mm. uh, kind of portray them in a cute light and and yeah give them a bit of a personality now I know that that's dangerously close to anthropomorphizing and I don't Mm, mm. necessarily agree with anthropomorphizing animals because it can be dangerous in so many ways but I think when it comes to trying to sort of introduce people to spiders and show them in a more positive light I don't see any harm in saying things to them like next time you see a spider in your room instead of freaking out why not give it a name say hello to it and watch it from a distance and see what it's doing you know try and be friends with it. Try and sort of give it a bit of a personality so it doesn't feel quite so scary anymore, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. I've had it work yeah.
1: with a lot of people, so yeah okay it it may be bordering on anthropomorphizing but at the same time I think it helps people so yeah I take a light-hearted kind of friendly kind of cute approach to these things but at the same yeah. time, all of the information that I relay is rooted in science and anyone who asks me questions mm. about spiders is, is going to get a factual response that is backed up yeah science and that I can give them you know links to read more about yeah it, of course you know, that kind of thing so yeah spider advocacy for me is um it's kind of, I suppose I'm I'm PR for spiders. I'm yeah. I'm an agent for spiders.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I I don't have like a scientific background at all. And although obviously like some of the the same research for um things that I did study, I use in my research and stuff for the show when I'm like talking about ladybirds and different insects and things. And yeah, like I think sometimes that aspect of things can be like quite intimidating if you kind of like you know like what you're saying about like how you don't want to call yourself a scientist I'm like every time like someone if I put out something on the show I'm always worried that I've like got some got something wrong or like I've missed out a crucial scientific detail
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very healthy way to look at it to be honest because yeah. understanding that you don't know everything and that there is a lot of information out there you know it's like I I do what I do mm. fully in the knowledge that there is a likelihood that I'm going to say something that's not 100% yeah. correct, but people will, will know from my sort of mm. approach and the way I am. And the fact that I have a lighthearted sort of good, yeah. humoured way of doing these things, I'm absolutely open to being corrected. I'm be, I'm open to being yeah. called out if I say something that yeah. is not correct. Yeah. I don't believe that I am the font of all knowledge when it comes to spiders, but you know I'm The minute I decide that there's nothing left for me to learn is the minute I stop being involved in science. The minute anybody says there's nothing left for me to learn, just don't do it anymore. There is always, always something to learn. And that's why I'm here doing what I do. I enjoy learning. I enjoy Mm. teaching other people the kind of things that I've learned along the way that I thought Mm. were super cool and really interesting. And I just there's just something really exciting and really um Gratifying about learning things every day in life. You know, I'll get on the internet and I'll learn something new about spiders. I'll read something yeah. new in a book that I didn't know before. And it's just, like, this is what it's all about. So I think, you know, doing what you do, having a podcast talking about an organism mm. that you're passionate about, and um, doing what I do, getting on Twitter and just talking whatever about spiders, it's, I think that passion and that enthusiasm is what brings a lot of people in and what sort of opens a lot of people yeah. to, to learn yeah. more and I think yeah. you're being yeah. able to sort of be humble mm. about it be down to earth about it accept that you don't know everything you'll no. never know everything you're you know you're open to learning just the same as the people that you're talking to are mm. like I think that, that makes for a much more relatable science communicator yeah you know I think that people who perhaps have a bit of a a bit more of a haughty kind of mm. approach these things like oh well I'm an expert you know I absolutely respect experts don't get me wrong of course I do but when they've got that kind of uh, I don't want to say holier than now because it sounds like I've got a bit of down on these people but sometimes you get that impression yeah them, and you're like that doesn't feel relatable that doesn't feel like the kind of person that yeah. I would feel confident you know you get to, that
0: all the time in like the identification groups
1: yeah unfortunately <laughs> you do and you know I passed that <laughs>
0: I remember like I I posted a mm. I found a really interesting spider once in like a local woodland that's kind of like my local like patch for finding for finding like creatures and I thought it was a really good picture and I said I posted something like what's this and like everyone was like saying it's a fence post it's like oh I can't see it like what, like, what are you talking about like and um oh it's a spider Oh, like you know D- do you know what this is I do but like uh oh yeah yeah I do and they're like oh, what what is it then like you know like oh well I don't know like you know you'll have to you have to find that out like
1: <laughs> yeah it doesn't help it really doesn't help and I mean like I know no. some people are maybe they read what you're saying as okay well this is somebody who's keen to identify something perhaps i'll just give them some pointers so they can go off and get the identification themselves and feel proud for having done that but also at the same time like you get some people who are just like well i do know what that is but you know i, I don't know I I've a lot on facebook groups and it used to make me feel uh, like i didn't really want to have too much to do with that part mm. of the community i get a lot of identification requests for spiders on twitter and yeah, I, I do my best to ID them. And the thing with spiders, and I'm sure it's similar with ladybirds, I'm sure you'll know about this, but certainly in mm. vertebrates on the whole, getting an identification to species level is not always as simple as looking at it and saying, Oh, it's that. So with spiders, um, there are lots of different types of spiders that visually look exactly the same, and the only way to tell the species apart is by looking at their genital structures under magnification. Now, not everybody is equipped to do that. But when you are starting out and you're developing an interest and you find spiders and you're beginning to learn things about, you know, like you start mm. to be able to tell for yourself what family it is or, you know, what genus it is, there's this part of you that's very excited to be able to identify things to species level and to be able to say, this is the the scientific name for this thing that I've found. And I think that the enthusiasm there, sometimes um, people get a little ahead of themselves and they're like, oh, I know exactly what species this is because it looks like what's in my guidebook. It's like, I want to encourage people to, to learn about identifying and to, you know, to be able to ID things and to be able to help mm. people ID things and know what they are. But there needs to be an understanding that sometimes... Even experts can't identify a spider by looking at it. Even under a microscope, they'll still be sat there amongst themselves having an argument about, well, I think it's this and I think it's that. It's very, (laughs) very difficult. It's very difficult. A lot of them are very ambiguous. A lot of them are so, so close in how they look.
0: A lot of them are very tiny as well.
1: Yeah, well, okay, so in the UK, we have approximately, thereabouts, 650-ish species of spiders present in this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, Two-thirds of those belong to the family Linopheidae. Now, linofeids are what we commonly know as money spiders, they're little tiny black spiders, and a lot of them are visually indistinguishable from one another. So you think two-thirds of 650, that's how many different species of linofeidae there are in this country, the vast majority of which all look the same. And even for an expert who has a microscope in front of them, Figuring out exactly what species they're looking at can be extremely difficult. So, yeah. you know, going back to what I was saying about identifying things for people on Twitter, I get asked to ID quite a lot of stuff. I have absolutely no problem saying, oh, well, look, I'm pretty sure it's this family. I'm. It may even be this genus, but I, I can't confidently go on that. I can't confidently ID to species. Sometimes I will ID to species, even when it comes to species that are a little ambiguous. There are a few that look quite similar, but I'll base it on things like, geographical location or time of year or just likelihood in terms of population distribution that kind of thing um so i can sometimes confidently say you know sort of like i'm 90 percent sure that this is i don't know say salticus senecus a species of jumping spider
0: yeah yeah and
1: sometimes other spider people will come in and be like well you can't id from just a photo it looks they look very similar i was like no I, i know but this person lives in this part of the country. And as far as our records show, they don't occur in that area. So it's more likely to be this species and that you know what I mean. So you yeah, yeah. have a lot to it. It's not just a case of here's a photo of a spider, tell me what it is. You know, it's it's a bit more depth than that. But it's something that I think a lot of people enjoy being able to, you know, say, Oh, kind of spider so it's something that I do like to help people with where I can yeah because it gives them a bit of a bit of excitement about what it is Mm. you know it's got a name now so they can look for it again in future or read a bit about it or something you know yeah that element of it is fun
0: okay so how did you get into keeping spiders then Uh, because I think you've got you said like now you've got like around 100 or so like or so, yeah like.
1: about 100 I'm, I'm downsizing my collection at the moment because of an upcoming field trip to ecuador next year oh wow um, i'll get onto that in a minute it's very very cool but that if it goes ahead will see me um away for about four months so i don't really have hundreds of spiders someone else is gonna have to look after yeah <laughs> yeah in in four months. but to answer your question about 20 years ago mm. um my boyfriend at the time bought me a tarantula for my birthday, much to my mum's absolute horror. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> it was very cool. I was very excited. But, yeah, so I got this tarantula for my birthday. Yeah. It was a species um species, and it was absolutely awesome. And I couldn't stop looking at it. So at the time, I had snakes. I've always had animals. So there's always been animals yeah. in my house. Yeah, was yeah rabbits and guinea pigs and gerbils and god knows what there's always been cats and dogs around so animals are, are a given but exotic pets um were an interest that i started to develop in sort of mid to late teens
0: yeah
1: and so i had a i think i had a couple of snakes um and a few other miscellaneous bits and pieces like frogs toads oh wow um okay. yeah i'm very lucky in that nearby where i live there's a very good exotic pet shop that's been there for a very long time it's got mm. a very good reputation and their animals are always very very um, healthy and sourced responsibly and just, you know, very cool. So that was, uh, that was nearby, still is nearby where I live. Um, so we went up there and had a little look and my boyfriend noticed that I was looking at the spiders and that's why he bought me one for my birthday. So I get this spider for my birthday and mm. I think I must've, yeah, 20 years ago, I'd have, been, I'd have been 17. I think I'd just turned 18. And I, I was fascinated by it. I was absolutely fascinated by it. It was such a beautiful creature Um and just watching it, you know, feeding it and seeing how it would seize its prey and just watching it do things like when it was coming up mm-hmm. on a molt, how it would spin this little silken mat that it would molt on and just seeing how how incredible the process of it molting was. It just, just, I was absolutely captivated. So my interest in keeping spiders stemmed from that. Um and I've always had a lot of exotic spiders when I lived in America I had a lot of different things I kept recluses and widows because I mean they yeah. widows those were native yeah. to the area that I lived yeah recluses yeah. not so much but they were new yeah. to me so it was amazing to go outside and find a black widow and keep her for a little while observe her and, and then release her you know um it was awesome um also being able to go out in the desert during tarantula season. So sort of September time, the male tarantulas.
0: That would actually be pretty amazing.
1: It is awesome. So the males go out looking for females. So you find these big male tarantulas wandering oh, around in the desert. Yeah. And it's so cool. But I had, you know, non-native species as well. that I kept So various different types of tarantulas, scorpions, true spiders, all kinds of things. Um, and then when I got back to the UK in 2016, I pretty much picked up where I left off, started getting more spiders. And then, Yeah, when I moved to where I am now, I was able to have a room dedicated to just everything, like my stuff. So my art studio was in there and I put a couple of big wire racks in there, shelving racks, put all my spiders on. And the collection just kind of got out of hand, (laughs) got lots and lots of spiders, started various different breeding projects just Mm. to absorb them and learn about them. And then that kind of coincided with me me getting more actively involved in the science side of things as well. Yeah, so, yeah. Although the majority of my background with keeping spiders has been as as a hobbyist, um, yeah. in the last sort of, few years it's turned more towards science. So now, mm. although I have several that I keep, I hate the word pet, but we'll say yeah, you know, I, yeah, I them, um, because they're not for it's not for a scientific reason. I just keep them because I enjoy them and and I can. Give them a good life, and I you know, mm. I, each them. I take photographs of them and I use those photographs that I take of them to help other people, you know, perhaps overcome their fears or give them a closer look at something they wouldn't ordinarily get a chance to see, yeah. that, that kind of thing. So they play a part in my science communication mm. effort as much as they do, just sort of enjoyment, be, you yeah, you enjoy, you know,
0: yeah. But,
1: so, yeah, it, it started out as a hobby thing and then it kind of progressed more to, to science and science communication. So, where I am now is most of the spiders that I keep are, I've got a lot of tarantulas. They like they, the female mm. tarantulas live for a very long time, so they'll be with me. For
0: they can long. live for about 40 years, like in some cases, can't they? So, the oldest
1: recorded spider that we know of was a trapdoor spider um, who lived to 43, I think. And the only reason he died was she got got by a parasitic wasp. So she didn't die of old age. So God knows how long she could have gone on for.
0: Um, but yeah. And that probably means that there's other ones out there that are longer. Exactly. So
1: that was one that this person, the lady who was researching her, happened to find as a baby and monitored for 40 odd years, um, which is incredible. So, yeah, the likelihood is that there are some out there that live longer. In terms of the tarantulas that I keep, um, it's not unusual for the females to last anything up to around about 20 years of certain species. Um, I don't really wow. know we've had female tarantulas go on for much longer than 20 years. The oldest mm. one I have uh is probably going on 19 now, I think. Um so I haven't had her that whole time. She belonged to a friend of mine. Um oh,
0: wow. Yeah. She's in my yeah. care
1: now. But yeah, she's about 19. She's a salmon pink birdie to Laciodora Parahabana um beautiful and she's huge but yeah so i think on average uh well cared for female tarantula you can expect sort of around about 15 years for you know some of the larger species some of the smaller dwarf species maybe not quite so long but okay they do they go on quite a long time so
0: cool yeah so spiders i'm sure like when i've been out on walks or like out in the garden or whatever like it's quite obvious that spiders i think can be quite a big predator of ladybirds in fact i think they might actually be the biggest predator apart from apart from parasitic wasps i think and i just wondered like is there like a particular type of ladybird that spiders go for or is there like a particular type of spider that likes to eat ladybirds as part of its diet
1: So as far as I'm aware, ladybirds Mm. on the whole are quite unpalatable for a lot of things in nature. So they've they've got a defense mechanism where they they have a toxin or some Mm. kind of foul tasting Mm. substance that they can secrete. That means that most things that pick them up will drop them. Um, So I don't tend to see spiders taking ladybirds uh, over other things as a matter of habit you know it's not something that i see happen a lot i do know that there are some kinds of spiders who don't seem at all bothered by the toxins that these creatures create so yeah Yeah. one of the more common species of spider that we see in the uk um the cross orb weaver or european garden spider or you know one of many different common names um its scientific name is arenaeus diadematus um yeah. it's very commonly seen around about this time of year is when um the young the youngsters from last year are starting to reach kind of adult size um this time of year also is when you see a lot of the babies you that are hatching very
0: big ones don't you yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, you do get some very yeah. the the females, round about sort of late summer, early autumn, the large females will be out in their webs getting ready to lay their egg sacs. They can get very, very big. Now, as far as I'm aware, um, they will take ladybirds no problem and they don't seem in any way bothered by the the toxins that they contain as it were they seem to be able to eat them without a care in the world no problem at all so with spiders like Araneus diadematus being an orb mm. weaver they spin mm. the great big round web and they sit and lie and wait for and something that flies will, into it
0: land on it then
1: yeah basically the only thing that seems to um dictate whether or not they're going to take what has landed in their web is the size if it's too small for them to bother with they tend to leave it if it's too big usually it'll escape from the web anyway if it's mm. too big for the spider mm. to take. Um, but if it's a reasonable size and a ladybird in comparison to one of these spiders would be a decent, you know, mm. they're not yeah. too small yeah. for it to want to bother with. It's, it's you know, yeah. it's fine. Um, yeah. They'll take it. They'll, they'll wrap it up and they'll, they'll eat it and they don't seem to have any problem with that. Um, I think sometimes um, wolf spiders and some of the other active predators will give them a go. Um, but I think a lot of the time Certainly with active hunters like wolf spiders and jumping spiders, they have quite keen eyesight. So they're able to tell what something looks like mm. much better than something like an orb weaver that doesn't have really good eyesight. I think a lot of the time they'll avoid ladybirds because of the taste thing. They know... Because, yeah, they,
0: they will know what it looks like. So, yeah, so avoid it. I
1: think, you know, in terms of their defence mechanism, their anti predation mechanisms, ladybirds have got it pretty much figured out. Like they, they know how to avoid things by being bright colored and foul tasting, yeah. most things will leave them alone um it actually comes up sometimes when people ask me about you know they have found a spider they want to keep it for a while what can they feed it um you know i'll say well in the wild it would eat this and that but there are certain things i will tell them not to feed it so don't feed it ants don't feed it bees or wasps and don't feed it ladybirds so those those are the things that i try to tell people you know don't most beetles it, i would say probably don't bother with most beetles because a lot of the time spiders won't go after things that are too hard bodied if you can find something
0: it, softer body lady bodies... bears got an exoskeleton doesn't it so
1: well all yeah. invertebrates do all invertebrates even yeah. earthworms it's an exoskeleton rather than a skeleton so the outer yeah. casing
0: of the body is an exoskeleton it's not gonna go, not gonna go for an earthworm
1: <laughs> well no so <laughs> the ladybirds as with most beetles yeah, they have yeah. the the wing cases the elytra they're they're quite hard not very mm-hmm. easy to, to penetrate with fangs so you'd have to sort of grab it at the right angle maybe flip yeah. it over grab it from underneath i'm talking as if i were a spider now but yeah yeah, yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> i think because the first thing that you know active hunters like wolf spiders jumping spiders yeah. that kind of thing will see is a yeah. bright shiny red and black body they'll be like mm, no i think i'll go find something else so they, they tend to escape being eaten just through how they look so When it comes to the the spiders that tend Mm. to predate on these things, a lot of the time it is going to be things like orb weavers because, like I said, they don't have such good Mm. eyesight. They're not picking and choosing what prey they take. They're going by what's in their web and whether or not it's of a size that they're willing to take. If it's the kind of size that they're willing to take, a lot of the time they'll run over and check it out. If it's something, you know, that they don't feel like eating, if it's a beetle and they don't feel like dealing with a hard wing case or whatever, maybe they'll wrap it up and leave it in their web. Sometimes they'll... Get rid of it, but most of the time, if a ladybird ends up in an orbweb, it's probably gonna get eaten. (laughs) It's gonna
0: be be eaten, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 because sometimes you do see ladybirds that have been wrapped up and Mm. it's clearly still alive, but the spiders just left it because obviously kind of realised, oh, oh, like a bit too disgusting like
1: the only other time I think I've seen them like the remains of ladybirds that have been eaten are mm. uh later in the year when they tend to sort of come inside to hibernate sometimes you'll find ladybirds mm. tucked mm. away in like curtains or you know up high on the ceiling or somewhere dark you know they'll hibernate <laughs> in places and I have found ladybird remains in my house that have been had by daddy longlegs. so daddy longlegs is a bit of a Bad common. So name. I kind
0: of think of that like as the cellar. Yeah, that's the um, because the harvestman. I always thought when I was a kid was the daddy long legs, and also crate, and also a crane fly. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. But there's another one, isn't there? There's a cellar spider. That's the
1: one I'm talking about. Mm. So yeah, the mm. one, the the third one. So daddy long legs is a common name can refer to three things, as you said. So harvestman, which are a different type of arachnid altogether. Uh, Crane flies, which obviously are not arachnids, they're flies, and then cellar spiders. So the scientific name for these is Fulcus phalangioides, the super spindly spiders that you tend to see up in the corners of rooms. I mean, where I'm sitting right now, I can see about six of them. There's loads of them in here. Um, But they're extremely (sighs) accomplished hunters. They'll take pretty much anything, including other spiders, quite often spiders that are far larger than they are. Um, Anything that wanders into their webs basically is fair game. Mm. Um, So I have sometimes found ladybird remains in dark dingy corners in my house where (laughs) it's probably been looking for somewhere to hibernate. It's found a dark corner somewhere and it's thought, okay, well, this looks fine. It's wandered into a web. The spider sensed the movement. It's rushed in and grabbed it. And with these spiders, what they do is they they tend to start throwing silk around whatever is in their web straight away before they've even bitten it. They just start throwing silk around this prey and then they'll bite it and then they'll eat it so they seem to be fair game as well but another thing that these spiders have in common with the orb weavers is they don't have terribly good eyesight they've got very small eyes they don't see in full color like some yeah yeah they they kind of their eyes function as light sensors more than anything else so they see movement they see shadow they see light and dark but they don't see detail so yeah they wouldn't
0: notice the color of the ladybird or
1: no so again it's a case of something's wandered into the web spiders thrown some silk around it and decided if it's going to eat it or not and again more often than not it will
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay um so do you know like are there any ladybirds that actually eat spiders do you know if that ever happens
1: that i don't know um that's an interesting question though because obviously ladybirds being that they eat aphids and you know they do predate on other things I do have to wonder if they will occasionally take young spiders because you know I heard
0: that some ladybirds will eat spiders eggs but I don't yeah. know about yeah. I mean, actual spider
1: If you look at going back to our garden spiders that we were talking about the orb yes. when they hatch out of their eggs they're super tiny they're not much bigger than an aphid and they you know they'd be similar in terms of how easy it would be to eat you know quite soft bodied same sort of um (laughs) consistency shall we say (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. you know it's not going to find a baby spider to be much crunchier than you know an aphid or whatever (laughs) so I mean in terms of its ability to eat something like that it would certainly compare quite well to an aphid Mm. so I don't know I mean the the orb weavers don't tend to congregate on plants in quite the same way that the aphids do. You will see aggregations of them when they're very young. So first or second instar, when they've just emerged. Yeah. From their they'll cluster together for a while, but as soon as something touches them, they disperse. They, they mm-hmm. The bundle of spiders falls apart and they go all over the place. And then when they feel danger has passed, they'll regroup and they'll, they'll cluster together for a while again. And that goes on until they have their next molt and they get a little bit bigger and then they disperse and they go off and they start spinning their first... Webs of their own and living an independent life. So this
0: is when. So, so they. So they actually don't start making a web straight away. They kind of like they have to do one or two molts before they. Yeah, they
1: they, create, they start doing it. They do create silk, so they they are producing silk at that young age, but they're not creating an orb web until they're you know until they've molted again and they're another sort of size larger, as it were. Um. So they will when you find a group of them. Sometimes you'll find them in your garden. All bundled together, they're mostly yellow and they've got a black dot on their bum. So that's probably going to sound familiar <laughs> to some people in the UK. Um, and indeed, yeah, yeah. they're in America and they're in Europe and they're all they're all over the place, really. So they're quite a common thing to find. Yeah. But when they're super tiny and they've just left their egg sac, um, they will produce silk, and you will quite often see quite a lot of silk, like lines all around where they're grouped together. They'll use it as a way of finding their way back to where they were mm-hmm. all bundled together if they are disturbed and they do disperse they'll sort of balloon away on a silk strand or i say balloon parachute away as it were on a little silk strand and then they'll use that silk strand to climb back up again later so yes they they don't produce they don't start creating the full-on orb webs that they're known for until they're a little bit older but they do start producing silk pretty much straight away okay
0: yeah because sometimes on on like the underside of leaves. I don't know. I actually don't think this is an all web spider, but sometimes it's sometimes you get like a a covering mm. of silk and there's a little spider yeah. like buried away. And oh, something last year that I found quite cute. I was on a walk and I found like some crinkled up leaves um on this I, I don't know what kind of not Sure what kind of tree it was it might have been like a young ash tree, and I decided to see like what was in these leaves and it obviously been made by a spider because they because the the leaves like wrapped mm. up with with silk, but then but they'd had they'd been like some rainy weather, and like the spider was kind of like on one end and like some seven spots and uh 24 spot ladybirds like of different sizes had like w- and different types like different species had like wandered in the other end and they were like oh, sheltering wow. from this thing <laughs> that was made and the the, spy- the spider was like at one end and the ladybirds wow. were at the other end like all clustered together
1: <laughs> well that's really interesting so i i mean like i said before i don't really know a whole lot about ladybirds as an organism yeah. like they're not something that i study but i didn't know that different species of them would sort of cohabit in certain areas yeah, they, that's very it's cool usually,
0: it's usually during the winter but at periods of yeah. bad weather like if it's been raining and stuff they will they will sometimes kind of like cluster together and it's
1: really cool i yeah. have no idea yeah. yeah i mean as regards to the spider there are a few different types of spiders that will make little retreats in curled up leaves um mm. so you will find them quite a lot sort of if you go out in the garden and have a little look around looking underneath leaves on you know shrubs and trees
0: some of them are very green aren't they yeah. i think there's like that cucumber and i think crab spiders as well yeah there's
1: a few different types of spider in this country that are very sort of bright green um i find mm. quite a lot in my garden so there's uh green crab spiders they mm. are mostly green body with a kind of sandy mm. brown bum um there's the flower crab spider which usually is white but can turn yellow and has a little bit of green on it sometimes as well um we have the uh candy stripe spider which is a type of um footed spider they quite often have a like a lime green body um we have a couple of others as well so there's nigma walkanary which is a lace no wait a minute a mesh weaver um they're kind of bright emerald green the females are anyway um and they okay. they spin like a little um a little mesh web on the top side of leaves usually so they'll find a yeah like a dip in it and then they'll spin themselves like a little mesh silk yeah over the top of them and they'll sit inside it um quite unusual to find in this country although still present is our only species of huntsman which is um micromata viruc- is it viracens micromata viracens yeah i think so um sorry my scientific names they're all a jump don't worry i try to recall them just from memory sometimes it's hard but um they're bright green um they don't spin webs that, that they live in they're they're active hunters like uh jumping spiders and wolf spiders but if they've yeah. got eggs they'll quite often spin a retreat to lay their eggs in um but they're bright green and absolutely beautiful no so, so, so there are quite a few bright green friends in our country so
0: cool yeah, cuz jumping spiders are very they're I mean I listened to a podcast about it once and jumping mm. spiders are very intelligent. I've heard that they they can actually remember like previous techniques that they've used like for hunting and they and they've worked out how to do all sorts of thi- all sorts of stuff and they're supposed to be like kind of like as intelligent as some mammals, I think.
1: Yeah, I think I've heard all kinds of like um comparisons between you know what their intelligence can be mm. um, yeah you know some people say oh they've got the intelligence of a german shepherd dog they've got the intelligence of a four-year-old child i i don't know exactly what you mm-hmm. would be able to sort of measure their intelligence as but certainly they are the poster child for someone like me who is trying to demonstrate that spiders are not stupid you know they're not just robotic kind of you know, certain types of spiders interact with their environment in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect them to, and they seem to de- they seem to demonstrate the sort of capacity to learn things and to remember things and to respond to things um, based on past experience. Okay, they are quite widely used study organisms for that reason. So, people who study spiders will quite often choose jumping spiders to work with because they are that much more interactive with their environment. There's much more scope for behavioural studies to be done with these these spiders because they're so different to other things and because they're active hunters, because they don't just sit in a web all day and wait for things to come to them, because they actually go out and look for food. You know, they exhibit all kinds of different hunting strategies and behaviours. Mm. Their courtship displays as well are very interesting from the perspective of anyone mm. who's into spiders or animal behaviour at all, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. the male
1: will do its own unique little dance to entice a female you know and quite often they've got very bright colors that go along with these courtship displays because again as active hunters with good eyesight they're able to see different colors and they're able to communicate with each other using colors you know mm-hmm. as an added sort of thing to their repertoire they are certainly uh as far as intelligence in in invertebrates goes they are certainly up there um and very interesting from the perspective of anybody who's into spider behavior behavioral ecology kind of thing because mm. they do show all of these things they do show an ability to analyze their surroundings and adapt to certain situations yeah. based on what they've learned about where they are and you know their surroundings and how mm. they can interact with them you know they're very cool <laughs>
0: okay cool <laughs> so when I first like sort of when we were sort of talking before, um, you said that there are some other sort of overlaps and kind of like interactions that spiders and ladybirds have that don't necessarily involve like predators and prey. Like, do you want to like tell me about some of those or?
1: Yes. So, that uh, the what I was referring to there is um, spiders that mimic ladybirds. So if we go back to what we were talking about with ladybirds being hunted by spiders, one of the things that I mentioned was obviously this this unpalatable taste. Um, So throughout the animal kingdom, ladybirds Mm. are one of those animals that are known by other animals as being something that tastes gross. And therefore we don't want to bother with that. Spiders, on the other hand, To a lot of things that eat invertebrates, spiders are pretty delicious. You know I mean? They've got a nice, juicy bum, like, sort of all kinds of goodness. They are not particularly tough to eat. They don't have very thick exoskeletons, not like a
0: beetle. Well, even, like, the venom in the the spider would, like, be digestible or yeah
1: so basically that's the difference between venom and poison so something more poisonous is going to harm you if you eat it mm. something mm. venomous is going to harm you if you get it in your bloodstream so if something mm. venomous bites you you're in trouble but if you bite it you'll be fine <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know I could swallow a uh, hugely venomous spider and as long as it didn't bite me on the way down I'd <laughs> So, you know, I'm not saying I would because I like them too much, but the fact is that spiders to, you know, things like birds, small mammals, other spiders, other invertebrates, all kinds of things, they're they're pretty tasty. They're pretty delicious. Um, And a lot of the time fairly helpless against things like that. So there are some types of spiders who've developed a certain amount of armor or some kind of um, bodily, like, accessories as it were uh, that help them not get eaten by things so there's certain types of orb weavers who've got great big spines on their body that make it physically difficult for something like a bird swallow it so they tend to grab it realize they're going to have a hard time with it and drop it mm-hmm. but there are other types of spiders out there who you know they're, they're pretty defenseless and if something bigger than them decides they want to eat them they're, they're probably going to get eaten so some of them have developed a way of mimicking animals that are not quite so palatable as them. So ladybirds, for example, um, which, you know, they, they've got bright coloration, bright red and black. In the animal kingdom is generally a pretty clear marking of, don't mess with me, I taste disgusting, or you're going to have a really bad time for some reason. You know, I might be poisonous, I might, whatever. So most animals know to avoid things that have that kind of coloration. Um, wasps, for example. Yeah,
0: yeah. And-
1: yellow and black stripes. Don't mess with that, you know? So, um, ladybird spiders, as they are commonly known, have developed, they've evolved to have coloration that resembles ladybirds. Um, the males do, females don't. Mm-hmm. The reason for this is that females of these spiders, as with many types of spiders, don't tend to leave their webs once they're mature. They spin a little retreat somewhere, they wait for prey to come to them, they'll rush out and grab it and bring it back in, but they don't tend to go out and wander around too much. The ones that you find out and about wandering around are either juveniles who are looking for somewhere to set up a web or mature males who are out looking for females. And it's the mature males who have this coloration that looks a bit like a ladybird, which is solely as a deterrent for predators um, Mm -hmm. because they've got nothing else. You know, they might be able to give a bit of a nip, but they're not dangerously venomous. So they're not going to kill anything by biting it unless Mm -hmm. it's prey. Um, And you know, if the bird's going to come down and grab it, it's not going to have the time to spin around and bite it anyway. Even if it did have the opportunity, it's going to be game over pretty much straight away. So they have to rely on making themselves look unpalatable and like something that tastes gross, like a ladybird. So these ladybird spiders, their legs and their head part, their cephalothorax tend to be velvety black, maybe with a little bit of white on them, but their abdomen is bright, bright red with black spots. There are different species, and some of the markings differ between species, but to generalise, bright red with black spots. Um, we have one species that is native to the UK, but it's very rare, and it's only found in one very, very small part of the country, like one tiny location in one part of the country down in the southwest. Um, but they occur mm. in Europe and the Middle East and parts of North Africa, I think. Um, mm. I'm not sure if they go as far as Asia, but certainly... Europe and the Middle East they're quite sort of commonly found around there um and they're absolutely beautiful really really stunning beautiful little spiders those ladybird markings are quite something but they are very very bold so it is very much a case of if you're going to be out and about looking for a female you want to really hope that that mimicry of a ladybird is going to be adequate for something not to want to eat you
0: they're very rare I think they're in are they, is it Dorset?
1: Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down yeah. in Dorset, somewhere very, very, very small area that they. And
0: think they live? Do they live like they live like quite close to the ground? So it's easy yeah. to like step. Like that's why they don't really want people going there because yeah. it, they can easily like step on them or.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. why I don't make a habit of mentioning exactly where they're found. No, um, no. I want to send people there looking for them, you know. Um, no. No. Same with anything a bit unusual, you know. If you know where an unusual orchid grows, or carnivorous plants, or something like that, you don't necessarily want to be broadcasting to the whole internet where you found it, because then you're going to have no. They're trying to take it, or trying to, you know, trying to look at it. Yeah, yeah. Destroying the the habitat that it lives in, or something. So, yeah, they they occur in a very very small little pocket. A couple, I think. Yeah. A couple, yeah, there has been some reintroduction efforts lately. Mm try and sort of expand their range slightly Mm. so i think i'm in a couple of very small little pockets down that way now but yeah okay and in dorset sort of area um but yeah um on the mainland they're not quite so scarce but in this country yes they live quite close to the ground and they also like it quite dry um Mm. because they prefer arid conditions that's kind of ties into why we don't really have many of them here because yeah because it's quite wet yeah exactly they like dry Mm. and scrubby so um they they found areas down down in the southwest that they obviously do alright um but if you're going to be somewhere in this country looking for dry and scrubby it's going to be down south
0: somewhere mm, yeah
1: <laughs> yeah they yeah. Um, they do live close to the ground they prefer to sort of use scrubby little low-lying plant material and you know rocky little bits and pieces that they can make their little retreat in between you know where they can find little little tight spaces near to the ground where they can make their retreats that's where they Oh
0: yeah I suppose like with 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 climate change could it be possible that they'd like kind of expand their range more or
1: Quite possibly um yeah I mean if the conditions are conducive to their being able mm. to survive then certainly there's no reason why they shouldn't and you know with other types of spiders as well certainly spiders that have been introduced into the country that weren't originally from here you seem to see a bit of a, a sort of a pattern emerging as our climate is gradually increasing mm. our, our temperatures are increasing you'll see that their range tends to start m- moving a little bit further north sort of incrementally you know um so as things warm up a little bit wherever wherever they're able to survive they generally will
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah so I also wondered, do you know if there are any spiders that compete for food with ladybirds? Like, are there any spiders that eat aphids or yeah, scale mean, insects or anything like that? That
1: Yeah, definitely. I think um, aphids, they got a bit of a bum deal, really, didn't they? I mean, they're, they're... Looking <laughs> for more or less anything. Again, <laughs> I, know. I think the only thing they really have going for them is their bodyguards, and that's only because and
0: that and bodyguards. the fact that they that the that when they're born, there's another aphid inside it, and then there's another aphid yeah, inside. Oh, it's
1: <laughs> like a what is it? A, a, a Russian, Russian doll? Like. doll yeah, <laughs> Russian doll of aphids. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think yeah. Again, with uh, things like active hunters, jumping spiders. Young wolf spiders I say young wolf spiders because mature wolf spiders tend to stay closer to the ground they're more sort of ground mm. spiders but young wolf spiders are quite often see because they're lightweight and they you know they're not going to run into any difficulties if they fall a little way um, they tend to be a little bit sort of higher up on walls and you know up in uh, plants and that kind of thing. so certainly aphids um, they are going to be a staple for a lot of different types of spider um and other creatures similar also the flying ones you know the the, the winged aphids you'll see them oh yeah webs. they are I, I mean i suppose you wouldn't really have any direct competition with ladybirds here because the ladybirds will take whatever's within reach on a plant um <laughs> orb weavers that i was going to mention you do see a lot of winged aphids in their webs and when they're tiny yeah, yeah. they're the perfect size <laughs> for, for the little baby orb weavers to get fat on so that works out quite nicely obviously because they fly if they're flying a ladybird probably isn't going to go after it but a no but yeah certainly things like jumping spiders and any other active hunters or anything like the ones you were talking about earlier spiders that spin little retreats inside curled leaves all that kind of thing yeah
0: quite often they they're like the perfect size to like get an unsuspecting aphid yeah yeah exactly
1: and quite often they'll lay in wait and they'll wait for movement um so anything that comes in contact with their web if anything's moving around near their silk um they'll rush out and they'll grab it so it's feasible that if there's an aphid wandering around um and it triggers a silk line for something that's living you know in a curled leaf that it may well rush out and grab it um but it would only really be active hunters like jumping spiders particularly because they Mm. climb around quite a lot um those would probably be the most um competition maybe some other running crabs as well Philodromus species um oh yeah tend to be found quite high up in in plants and things and they're quite small okay so i would say spiders like those the running crabs and um jumping Mm. spiders are probably competing with, with ladybirds for aphids okay
0: so also like you know um quite a lot of lady bears as well eat like scale insects Mm. um they're a little a little bit more tough to to get yeah is there a spider that eats those or do you know
1: i would say an opportunist if a spider finds (laughs) one and is able to eat it it will um but That's that's the thing with scale insects, and that's why they're such a pain in the. Bum.
0: That's why they're so.
1: Yeah, that's why they're such a pain in the bum for anyone who grows plants. You know, they've they've got their whole defence mechanism pretty much figured out. They'll they'll hunker down. They've got their tough exoskeleton that's pretty much flush with the surface they're sitting on. Most spiders aren't going to bother trying to sort of get to it to eat it um when there's plenty of other things out there for them to go after that'd be easier. So um i think things like ladybirds have probably got a bit more of a specialism for things like that yeah spiders do spiders up, you know the things that ladybirds eat like i say it's more of an opportunist thing so if it sees an opportunity to take a scale mm. in touch, then i'm sure it will but it's not <laughs> going to go out of its way to try and pick something off of a, off of a branch no, <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think a lot of the ladybirds are like they're completely specialized to to deal with them also I wondered cuz this is something I mean uh, I wondered like um if you if you see a ladybird in a in a spider's web for example like should you should you rescue it or should you just leave it to like for the spider to do its thing what what, what?
1: i would say leave it Mm. and the reason for that is nature knows what it's doing and it's very easy for people and i i fall into this category as well you know it's very easy for people who are passionate about something to see something that they're passionate about in difficulty so thrashing around in a web and knowing what's (laughs) going to be next for that creature you know it's very easy for them to rush in and try and help it um but it's not necessary and by doing that, you're taking a meal away from something else who has just as much right as the ladybird yeah, or whatever yeah. it is you're trying to rescue to be there and to do what yeah, it does. Yeah. Everything that we share our space with works as part of a very fine-tuned, well-oiled system. Mm-hmm. So our ecosystem is, it's, it's a system, as the name suggests, and it knows what it's doing. It doesn't need us to interfere and to, to take no. away from other creatures just because we have some sort of bias because of what no. we so the temptation obviously is mm. very, very great. If you see something struggling in a spider web, you know, to go in and help it and to feel like you've done a good thing. And, you know, I know a lot of people will do that if they see something that they like stuck in a web. But if you're asking me personally, I would say as difficult as it may be. Leave it where it is because it's in there for a reason, and you've got to take into consideration the various reasons why it might be in the web in the first place. Maybe it's sick. Maybe it's just not destined to pass on its genes to the next generation. That's why it's ended up in the web. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why it might be there. It may be that the spider that spun the web has done a particularly good job, and therefore it's beneficial. The spider to its deserves
0: species. to get it like a yeah it's yeah
1: beneficial <laughs> to the sort of continuation of its species it to be able to pass mm. on what may be superior genes who knows but yeah nature knows what it's doing and if something is in a web for something else to eat it's there for a reason and we shouldn't interfere yeah
0: yeah I mean I have rescue ladybirds from the spider's webs in the past but I know it's not a particularly a good thing to do
1: I've seen other spiders in spider webs and wanted to go in there and help them before. It takes a hell of a lot of, sort of self-control not to do it, but I just have to keep it in mind that, you know, I don't think I'd like it too much if somebody decided it, <laughs> looked, it looked like it was in trouble and therefore they were going to save it from me. It was like, okay, well, there goes my dinner. Thanks very much. You know? <laughs>
0: it's like, oh, yeah, like... <laughs> Oh well, that that carrot deserves to be planted in the ground, like <laughs>
1: exactly,
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I know, I know. Um, yeah. Um, so, if someone like, let's say, if someone wants to start keeping spiders or or ladybirds for, for that matter, um, or like another kind of insect, even aphids or something like that, if they want to, if they want to start keeping them at home, like, what what would what advice would you would you give them?
1: first and foremost i would advise them to do a lot of research before Mm. they actually get hold of any animals to keep um you want to know exactly what kind of environment you need to provide for the animal if it's exotic species then you want to try and find someone to get them from that is responsible in how they how they how they themselves come into possession of them so you want to try and steer clear of anyone who's selling wild caught specimens um you want to try and look for captive bread if possible. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at keeping things that are native to where you live, mm-hmm. if you want to take something from nature to observe for a little while, then do a lot of reading and watch what they're doing out in nature, see how closely you can replicate the places that they're found in nature mm-hmm. in, you know, a miniature version in your house and be prepared for probably want you know releasing them at some point rather than keeping them long term forever as pets until they die it's better to take them for a little while from nature observe them for a bit and then put them back so they can go and do what it is they need to do which essentially is reproduce you know um do whatever it is their role in the in the ecosystem is you know carry that role out and reproduce so you don't want to take things from nature and take that opportunity away from them to be able to continue their genes and their numbers. Um, But if it's something that you're keeping as a pet, if it's something that you're keeping in captivity that you're getting hold of via a supplier or a pet shop or something, do lots and lots of research first. Um, Do your absolute best to give it the best enclosure that you possibly can base your research on not just things that people have written about how to keep these animals in captivity but learn about their native environment so if you know where something that you're looking to keep comes from read about the climate in that part of the world read about what kind of environment it can be found in try and replicate things like if it's a ground dweller what kind of ground does it live on is it rocky is it soil is it wet yeah is it- all of these things, you know, just try and clue yourself in as much as you possibly can about the native environment of the animal that you're going to keep and its requirements, not only environmental sort of requirements, but also the kind of food that it eats. So some animals are specialised in terms of the kind of prey that they'll take or, you know, what kind of plants they eat or whatever it is you're keeping, you need to know what its dietary preferences are. So in terms of spiders, for example... Most tarantulas will quite happily take crickets that you buy to feed lizards and you know spiders and whatever else from exotic pet shops or pets at home or wherever. Um, but there are some that specialize in flying prey, for example. So if you want to keep a spider that will only eat flying prey, you need to be able to provide it things like flies. So that's going to mean perhaps going to your local fishing tackle shop buying some maggots and allowing them to pupate and turn into flies and feeding them flies you know so Mm. if you're not up for providing that kind of food you're not going to want to keep that kind of animal because that's the only thing you can eat so you need to you need to make sure that you're well prepared for that kind of thing you need to make sure that you know exactly what it's going to eat exactly what kind of conditions it needs to live in and you need to be confident that you can provide all of those things properly um if you feel for any reason that you're not going to be able to provide those things properly or long term then you might want to consider doing something else like keeping something else or you know not keeping something exotic perhaps keeping something native short term so going yeah. something for a little while observe it for a few days or a couple of weeks or something mm-hmm. and then go. yeah um, but yeah it's all preparation basically be as prepared yeah. as, and as clued in and as read up on everything mm-hmm. you can possibly read up on as possible
0: yeah because I mean I've done stuff like i found a, a seven spot pupa in a field and i took it home and like when it hatched i just put it in the garden because i know that they that they can be pretty much anywhere hmm. and i've done stuff like um found some two spot um larvae and put them in and put them in the garden as well mm. um because i kind of think if it doesn't like it then
1: yeah i think that's another thing yeah. worth mentioning is if you're going to be bringing home things that you've found in nature mm be sure that it occurs in the area that you're going to be releasing it Mm. as you said you know, seven spot and two spot ladybirds are in your area so releasing them in your garden isn't a problem but if for example i were to go away Mm. if i were to go to wales for the weekend and find a cool be like oh this is amazing i'm going to bring it home if i then want to release it i need to make sure that that species is native to this area because if it isn't I could be releasing something that's going to disrupt the local Mm. system or that's not going to survive or, you know, it would be better for me to take it back to where I got it from. So if you're Mm. you're collecting things from your garden, then you're in a pretty good position to be able to let it go. I would say if you want to start with keeping native species, collect things that are from your immediate sort of location. Don't bring something home from when you were on holiday, you know, miles and miles away.
0: That's what happened with a lot of invasive species that's and like and also with invasive plants as well like that japanese knotweed which used to be like a used to be like an ornamental plant and now it's like a terrifying yeah, pest exactly. like
1: exactly well that's it you know and i think in terms of you know your average sort of regular person someone who's not obsessed mm, with spiders mm. or you know doesn't know about this kind of thing because they've never made it their business to find out you know fair enough each time mm. but for people like that they don't know that if they find a spider in their grapes from the supermarket, they might not be able to let it go locally.
0: It's not no, okay to just, like, open a window and, like, put it... <laughs>
1: just today, I saw another picture of somebody's spider that they'd found in some grapes from the supermarket, and it was a widow. Mm. It, the, the grapes had come from somewhere where widow species occur naturally, and I just right, thought, yeah. oh, oh, ugh, a spider, I'm just going to chuck it outside. Well, that's, a, that's an invasive species, you know? It's probably not going to last five minutes in our climate, but the fact of the matter is releasing invasive species into the wild is illegal um Mm. if you were found to have done that and whoever found out was feeling that way inclined to prosecute you they potentially could you're not supposed to release things into the wild that are not from this area from the area that you're in and although we may have species in this country, you know, that are native to the UK, they may not be native to this particular part of the UK. So by releasing an animal that's mm. not from where you live into a, you know, an animal yeah. that's from a different part of the country, um, mm. you're interfering in its natural kind of uh, range. You're interfering yeah. in how it's sort of distributing itself and that kind yeah. of thing. So it's just a responsible thing to do basically to make sure that if you're releasing something into the wild that you've collected in this country, that you're releasing it into the part of the country that it came from originally, or that you know that that species occurs where you are if you've got it from somewhere else, if that makes sense. So it's better better if you're going to be keeping species that are from your garden, for example, like I said, it's better to do it within the location that you found it and let it go back Mm. into that same location.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree with that. And I think like also because up in the woods I found like a, a quite a rare kind of ladybird, like a um like an eye ladybird pupa. And I didn't collect that. I just came to like watch it. Um, you know, I just watched it when I went when I went for a walk or something like and um and eventually and eventually it hatched, but like I thought about collecting it and I thought it's probably better to just leave it where it is because it's um because it's in a in in a woodland like with lots of trees and i don't have that kind of tree in my garden so i thought i'd better just leave it yeah i think
1: that's the wise thing to do you know because if it has a particular type of prey that it goes after and that prey Mm, has a particular host plant then you want to make sure that you're not plucking it from somewhere you know that has that host plant and then leaving it somewhere where it's not going to find the prey that it needs So, you know, these are all the considerations to take, which is why it's far better to release where you found something rather than move somewhere else. Yeah. Um, Especially like in your case, if it's an unusual species or something that you don't find terribly often, it's better to leave it where it is because it means that, you know, it's where it needs to be and it's in with a better chance of finding others of its species to reproduce with.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah,
1: that definitely makes sense.
0: So so when like people are keeping invertebrates I mean I've seen sometimes on Instagram and things like that like a few things with people have like found found ladybirds and they're really like not treating them in the right way like there was a someone on Instagram had like found a found a seven spot and she thought that this was like how to get it to go to sleep and so she kept on like putting it and she she kept on like putting it like on its back
1: mm-hmm.
0: and thinking that that's like a good way, thinking that will thinking that that's how it should go to sleep. And, um, and also like, I saw a video where someone had, um, collected a whole lot of like seven spot, uh, pupas. And obviously they'd like become detached from the, cause they're, they're supposed to be on like leaves so that they can push on the leaf to mm-hmm. get out. And so, when it when it came to for them to get out, they were just like struggling to get out and the, the peepers weren't attached or anything. Mm. And I just kind of like think that's like that's not really right. Have you ever seen something like that with yeah. spiders? Like if people not really kept them correctly. Yeah,
1: you see it quite a lot. And I thankfully I, I find the internet actually sort of things social media, mm. Instagram, that kind of thing has helped with this slightly. So before it used to be the case that you might find a tarantula at a pet shop. Um Mm. The pet shop that's selling it doesn't really know how to look after it. They've got it in and they just want to sell it. So they've got a completely um, unsuitable container with unsuitable Mm. substrate, that kind of thing. And they've passed all the information on to the person who's bought it. And so that person is now keeping that spider completely Mm. improperly and then wonders why it's not doing very well. Um, Used to see that quite a lot. But now with, like I said, with social media and people sharing a lot of information, People are very quick to to sort of call others out when they see something that's not being kept the way it should. So, you know that it tends to go the other way as well. You know, people get a little bit too um, forceful, perhaps, in telling others that they're keeping something wrong, and
0: and they actually might not. And they actually might not be yeah
1: well yeah. not only that but it, it puts people off if they have a bad experience with somebody online who's having a go at them for keeping something the wrong way there are ways of approaching people as ways of having that discussion and I think a lot of people are a little too aggressive when it comes to that kind of thing but mm-hmm. that said I do see quite a lot of stuff online people keeping things completely unsuitably or improperly and it's very difficult because at some point you have to realize that you know if you're going to be seeing a lot of this online you'd be spending every minute of every day calling people out and telling them they're doing mm. it wrong if you made it your mission to do that so a lot of the time you have to kind of you just
0: have just to kind of have to, to, like, to like think yeah you have to sort of accept
1: that you're never going to be able to stop everyone from doing it wrong you know you just if you can point them in the And also back, I think
0: there are like there are like ways of doing it like I think some people are genuinely like misinformed oh yeah absolutely like, and they're not intentionally trying to hurt anything they oh, just no. they just don't know how it
1: yeah absolutely yeah A lot of it is just misinformation and so all it really takes is a moment to just sort of kindly say oh you might want to read this article or this uh, page or whatever you know that's got some really good information about how to keep that species and you know hope that they go off and read it and and learn you know that oh hang on a minute that doesn't sound like I'm doing it right I better change this I better change that but like I said you know I mean if I were to do that with every single person that I come across on the internet who's keeping something not how it should be kept i'd, I'd never do it mm. once it would be taking up all of my time so yes i do unfortunately see quite a lot of it in severe cases of course i will say something but you know a lot of the time there's just a bit too much of it to begin <laughs> to be getting involved yeah we mm. kind of have to you uh, have to hope that other people in the community will see it and maybe you know take the time to say something um i don't want that to come out wrong i don't want that to come out like i'm not taking the time to educate people where necessary but you know there's there's a balance if I've got a million other things that I need to be doing I can't spending all of them I can't be spending all of my time on a you know husbandry crusade on the internet <laughs> so so you know I will help people where I possibly can but yeah it's yeah. all consuming if I were to go trawling the internet for everybody who's doing it wrong and telling them how to do it right
0: <laughs> yeah exactly so if someone wants to like make a more like spider or like invertebrate friendly in, like environment in their garden like what should, what kind of things should they be should they be doing
1: um no pesticides so pesticides mm. obviously that are designed to kill insects are going to kill other invertebrates as well which includes spiders. Mm. so pesticides are a no no if you've got problems with pests then you want to be doing things like encouraging spiders and ladybirds and you know mm. so um I find in my garden I do have quite a lot of aphids on my roses, on my buddleia, on, you know, all kinds of things, but I don't go out of my way to remove them. I don't pick them off. I don't spray them. Mm. I let nature do it. And I don't find now that I have any real sort of adverse effects from them being there. I don't find that my plants are failing because there's too many aphids, because I don't mm. use chemicals and because I encourage other animals yeah the balance has now been reached so as i said to you at the beginning of the interview ladybirds have absolutely decimated the population <laughs> on my buddlier which is great you know i let the spiders do what they need to be, so now i've got a good balance so the way that i have gone about getting this is i have lots of flowering plants in my garden which encourage mm. a lot of pollinators bees hoverflies all kinds of things um i don't use chemicals so i don't use weed killer i don't use pesticides i if i'm using um fertilizer that kind of thing I try and use natural fertilizers I try and put down grass cuttings that I've let of ferment a little bit I don't have a compost bin or anything like that at the moment which I, I think change but mm, at the moment I think, I think also
0: of- like the problem with with aphids I think especially like if you use lots of pesticides mm. it means that the aphids can event that there's going to be a few aphids that survive yeah and those aphids are just going to build up resistance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. you're just going to get like super. Aph- and then yeah. anything that tries to eat it, like a spider or a ladybird, won't have that yeah. resistance yeah. to it. So they'll end up dying and the aphids will just end up yeah. surviving yeah. again.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I find that if you just let nature do its thing, it will mm. be a balance where the aphids are not numerous enough to be causing your plants any problems anymore. And you've got lots of other things to enjoy, like spiders and ladybirds as well. Um, yeah. The other thing as well is that, you know, a lot of the plants that I have in my garden are food plants for caterpillars. Um, yeah. There's one particular type of caterpillar that I have in my garden at the moment that is the exception to all of this. It's the box bush moth. Oh, I've heard
0: about this. Yeah, it's species. like an
1: invasive species, isn't it? It's yes, an invasive species and it's a big problem and it will absolutely decimate
0: box bushes. It just destroys everything, yeah, doesn't it? You know,
1: it feeds on boxes on bushes um, and it will completely wipe them out. So that is the only exception to the pesticide rule. Personally, I wouldn't have the box bushes here if it were just my garden, but it's not. So the mm. box bushes are here and because of it being an invasive species we will spot treat the box bushes with a pesticide that is specifically designed for dealing with box blight so um that, that's the only exception and thankfully the box bushes are not near the main areas of my garden they're more kind of sculptural like uh topiary mm. kind of the front garden whereas a it- Um, that's where I'm encouraging all of the wildlife that's where all of my flowering plants are that's where all of the budlia and forsythia and red robin bushes and all of these other big shrubs that I have that I like to go looking for spiders on basically bottom line is just try and keep it as natural as possible so allowing things to grow wild if you can if you've got an area that you're allowed that you are willing to allow to grow wild that's always a good idea Mm. Um, if you want to keep a nice sort of manicured flower bed that kind of thing try and do it naturally try and do it without using
0: plot like natural plot like yeah wildflowers and things yeah
1: yeah and um, well wildflowers are great if you want to have an area that's kind of bit more wild leave it to nature kind of thing wildflowers are brilliant because you can just sow a lot of wildflower seeds and then just let it do its thing and while they're all in flower it looks absolutely beautiful and then the rest of the time it's kind of meadowy and it's nice but if you're gonna plant you know ornamental flowering plants that like we've got quite a lot of ornamental plants in the garden just let them do their thing don't don't go overboard with you know spraying fertilizer or pesticide or anything like that it it all disrupts the natural kind of flow of things if you've got things like problems with weeds in your flower bed them out manually you know rather than using weed killer go down there and actually put the time in to just pull them out it's gonna be mm. far better in the long run for your garden to yeah. do that way than it is to, to use chemicals all over the place.
0: Yeah, because we have things like Spanish bluebells and they're like they're like an, a bit of an invasive species and they just pop yeah. up everywhere. Yeah. You just have to pull them. You just have to pull them out, which is easier said than done. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. No, I, I fully, fully accept that a lot of the time pulling them out is a lot easier said than done. <laughs> if you're trying to encourage a natural garden, if you're trying to pull mm. mm. vertebrates and other wildlife, that's really the best way to do it because relying on chemicals is going to disrupt everything else a bit too much. Um, try and leave things out that are going to help uh, with the insect community, so like mm. bee hotels, that kind of thing. I know there's a lot of controversy regarding bee hotels, so do mm. research first before you use anything like that. But it doesn't have to be a bee hotel; it can be other things as well. Like I have a lot of uh, leftover slate roof tiles in um, mm. my garage, and I leave them lent up um, in a stack against the wall um with gaps in between them for things like spiders and hibernating insects of various different types yeah. to find and to utilize if they want to um, things like stacks of rotting logs if you have any of them lying around beetles, yeah absolutely love rotting wood that's what beetle larvae live off like, Stag stag mm. particularly are if you're in a part of the country where stag beetles are native having rotting logs lying around yeah is a really really good thing to do Because
0: that's yeah they need help. yeah
1: you know they need to have things like that to feed off of so having stacks of rotting logs or you know um cut branches all that kind of thing leaving all that kind of stuff lying around it gives invertebrates um places to live and to shelter so just that kind of thing really just make it as sort of bug friendly as possible with things that you leave lying around um making a conscious effort not to use chemicals and choosing nice flowering plants um and anything else that is known for being you know pollinator friendly mm. or bug friendly i think is a good idea and understanding that seeing things like small populations of aphids is not like a, it's not a reason
0: panic. it's not showstopper mm-hmm.
1: like <laughs> and if you are allowing everything else to be present lady mm-hmm. and spiders particularly your aphids aren't going to be a problem so
0: yeah yeah, yeah. and they they often just kind of turn up of their own accord don't they yeah, of course if they're I mean, attracted to yeah. if they're attracted to um yeah, because we I mean, last last year. Well, we didn't really, be ever see many ladybirds in the garden. But last year, like during lockdown, I think a seven spot just turned up in the garden. Just laid like, laid about thirty eggs on the sage, and like because it had an infestation of aphids, and like most of them survived. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's excellent. So, is there anything else you want to talk about at the moment, or?
1: Um, I don't think i've got anything that i need to push at the moment <laughs> i think i <I've-> most <laughs> okay so i mentioned at the beginning about ecuador um yeah that's 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 coming up uh in 2022 hopefully mm. covid thing so fingers crossed yeah fingers uh, crossed it will be 4 months out in ecuador in various different locations so rainforest cloud forest various different um environments oh wow and learning about their sort of behavioral ecology and just what they're doing out there and who they are and all that kind of stuff there's a lot of um, undescribed species out there that I'm excited to have a look at um but yeah, so that's something that I've got coming up and that's the reason why at the moment, you know, I don't have as many exotic spiders on my page as I perhaps have in the past because as I mentioned, I'm trying to downsize my collection so it's a bit more manageable and I have to hand mm. it over to somebody else while I'm away. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a Patreon page, I have my Twitter page, I have um, an Instagram where I post all of my photos of my various yeah. spider shenanigans. Um so, yeah, basically any involvement that anybody wishes to have, you know, even if it is just liking and commenting mm-hmm. or interacting with me on Twitter, all that kind of stuff, um, it's, all, it's all helping me uh, yeah. sort of in the run up mm-hmm. to go off to Ecuador and figuring out where this whole spidery journey is going to take me next. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So, where can like the listeners find you on like Patreon and Twitter?
1: Um, so, on Twitter, my username is T Francis. So, that's okay. T a underscore francis with an i okay um and yeah i mean if basically if you google t francis or scientific which is the name that i go by so that's scientific but instead yeah. of i it's t-e-a <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you google that they'll find um, my patreon page they'll find my twitter they'll find my instagram um so yeah basically t francis or scientific you should put that into google and you should find me no problem oh wow places that i hang out online so my twitter i'm most active on there i think i do Mm. use that a lot i'm always very very happy to talk spiders with people on there so i help people if they find things and they want to know what it is or they've got questions that kind of stuff um and i post a lot of photos and information of my own as well um, Instagram is mostly my photography so I do some macro photography um, yeah or post I post what I what I shoot there really a lot of it is exotic spiders for the ones that I have here but lately there's been a lot of native spiders that I've been finding and taking photos of as well um, and my Patreon it's mostly freely accessible so you don't have to sign up to it um, if you do want to sign up it's either two or five dollars a month um, okay and- you get digital download content. So your your phone or your computer um, and access to some exclusive content on there. But honestly, the Patreon page is... I put some stuff on there. I'm not posting on there quite as much lately. I do post content on there as and when I have it, but it's mostly there as an opportunity for people who get involved with me elsewhere on the internet so twitter mm. and instagram for example if they want to make a contribution towards my fundraiser for ecuador or anything like that patreon is where is where they do it so although patreon itself there's not huge amounts of like exclusive content on there it's kind of like my tip jar if mm. that makes sense so my content is spread out all over social media like across mm. instagram, twitter and facebook yeah not facebook more anymore, but yeah instagram twitter and um and what i do post on patreon like it's it covers all of that so basically any money that comes in through my patreon is kind of it's it's a tip jar like i said for, for everything that i put out there yeah. the outreach i do in various different places so yeah it's um it's kind of a a way for people to show their appreciation if they want to yeah and there's a no pressure at all of course but those people who have something yeah immensely immensely grateful to and it's thanks to them that i will be able to put money aside to be able to manage to get by while i'm out in ecuador and to get some important spider
0: work done that'll be that'll be absolutely amazing we'll,
1: yeah, like, there'll be a be good lot of patreon content yeah. behind that, i'll be taking photos of everything and posting it on uh, on patreon as i'm I'm hoping i can use my mm. patreon as a
0: blog while i'm out there that'll so, be amazing Look, good yeah. luck with it though. Thank you
1: very, very much. I'm very excited.
0: it'll <laughs> be no, yeah, absolutely great. So, thank you so much for uh coming on the show and um, yeah, like, like, like again, like, yeah, good luck with everything. And
1: thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been yeah. really nice talking and learning some stuff about yeah, Ladybug.
0: Lo- <laughs> yeah, it's been lovely talking to you as well. Thank
1: you very much.